You are listening to Mike Seminary and Friends, a Q1 Network production. You know, I'm 67. This summer, I celebrate with classmates my 50th class reunion from high school. I'm old. And what does that have to do with the podcast today? When I was a senior in high school, 71 to 72, then President Nixon declared the war on drugs. And the war on drugs is maybe a bigger task now than it was back then. Between what's happening in our southern border, um, the relaxation of attitudes by some with regards to consumption of drugs. And when I say that, I'm not judging anybody. I'm just saying when you factor in attitudes with something that is addictive, you have to be really careful what you ask for. With the increased number of people that are desperate for a variety of reasons, they're exposed to things that happen in the streets. Some of that I know firsthand because of people that I know. Our daughter's a cop. I've had First Lady Catherine Helgus Bergam on to talk about recovery reinvented and the disease of addiction. I've had Judith Roberts on to talk about her passion for folks that are struggling and she has sober living homes. I've interviewed a guy that's a former gang member in Watts, maybe one of the worst ghettos in the country, where it's, it's, the, it's the hood for the blood and the crypts, and almost everything there in the streets has some kind of criminal element to it, typically attached to drugs and trafficking of them. I could go on and on and on and on. We have a problem with drugs. We have a problem with folks that are struggling, that are desperate, that are looking for help. And sometimes the government, with its best efforts, can't address some of it. Best intentions they have, they can't. It takes people that have a different level of knowledge, maybe because they've been there, to help people that are incredibly desperate. Recently, my wife and I had the incredible blessing to attend a, a gala for an organization called Blessed Builders. And there's Blessed Builders Ministry. And, and I'm not really clear on how all of that works yet, but we're going to get to that. That evening, I saw Shane Bloom and his wife, Crystal, talk about their experiences, their stories, people that they're working with, and the incredible work that they're doing that is so desperately needed. I, I, I could go on and on and on, but you're sick of hearing me already. I have Shane Bloom. Shane is the founder of Blessed Builders Sober Living Homes with his wife, Crystal. Welcome to Mike's Seminary and Friends. It's great to see you, my friend. How are you today? I'm good. How are you doing, Mike? I'm good. And I'm so thankful that you have time to join me because I know how busy you are after being at the gala. Oh yeah, it's, and, it just don't stop. <laughs> and and what you're doing. So let let's start at the beginning, Shane, if you don't mind. Before let's actually just talk about first of all. In in short, what is Blessed Builders Sober Living Homes? And then I'm going to ask you 
how you and Crystal decided that this is something you needed to do. Okay, so uh, the sober, the sober homes basically are men and women's uh, houses with different phases, and so I could tell you a little bit about it. But we have a program set up where basically people will come in from treatment or a period of sobriety from the streets or some type of place, whether it's institution or prison or jail or BTC. But we work with candidates that can come in and they come into different phases and that it's like, you know, a curfew of 930, maintaining employment, going to certain meetings, having counseling. If they have uh, psychiatric stuff, getting that going, like using the housing to take care of themselves and get going in life. And uh, as they progress through phases, they l decrease in accountability, but there's still accountability. So it's it's up to two years you can be with us. But I've been in places, you know, I'm, I'm kind of getting into what you're asking, but I've been in different institutions, group homes, lockups, you know, all kinds of different places for years. And there really seemed to never be a place that you could transition to trust yourself to get into, you know, just kind of going on with life. It was either one extreme or the the next, or stay with friends and couches and, and just gamble at what you're doing, you know, maybe give it a go with no accountability. And uh, we, we looked at that as a need, is that people need to have someone to partner with them to walk out of that life, whatever that looks like for each individual. Shane, you, you, you were saying that, for those that maybe didn't pick up on it, based on your personal experience. Mm -hmm. So let's, let's talk about the Shane that I don't know. I, I, I know what you're doing now. I don't know the Shane from 10, 15, 20 years ago. Sure. How was it that you ended up in a situation where you, you and Crystal have blessed, uh, uh, blessed builders and sober living homes? What was your life like? Okay, so, I mean, that goes to the beginning, and I probably won't get into that, but, you know, single, I can summarize some of it. The single mother, uh, broken home, dad is super abusive, so she left him to save her life. She started drinking around five, so five till nine was a lot of every type of abuse, sexual, you know, emotional, all that stuff. Um, Ten years old in trouble with cops and police, and then, like, from 13 to about 23, it was drugs, prison, Group home, foster home, CIS, YCC. Um, I mean, everything I could get into, I probably was in all those places. 14 treatments, cognitive restructuring, sat in the hole for about a year. And it seemed I progressively would get worse in some of those institutions because I seemed to always click up with the guys that, you know, would accept me and, and, and partner with me. And I was always looking for some type of a male support person in my life. And so as I would connect to these guys, I, you know, the last prison bit I did I did three and a half years on four years for putting a gun to a girl's head and I I worked out 1500 push-ups in the hole you know benching 300 pounds deadlifting 500 pounds to get out to rob places that was my perspective and I was it was like a you know career criminal academy type thing and I'm not blaming the system I'm just there was nothing in place for positivity, there's really you're kind of a product of your atmosphere. I mean, it's choices, but you know the environment's kind of not very healthy. You're gonna kind of get an unhealthy mindset. So it's a survival of the fittest. You fight to survive. You're kind of toughen up, and um, 
And I'm not blaming that. I mean, it was, I'm, all, all of it was my choices still. I could have learned from it, but um, I didn't I didn't get better. And I've seen that in halfway houses too. People would come into them and maybe wanting to do well, but the atmosphere would be so like recidivism to go backwards or to use or the mentality for drugs or stealing or something. And uh, I just knew there was people that wanted out. And, and I needed to make a safe place where they could at least have a, a transitional place. And so that's why we do it is because there's people that actually want to get out. And if they, you know, end up going around it, they're not strong enough to say no. They're not strong enough to, they just fall back into it so easily. And before you know it, they're, they're 30 days into drugs and got a new charge and then it all fell apart again. So that's kind of why we started all this stuff, you know. I was saying, here's what I heard, and you weren't being critical of the system, in this case, the system, Department of Corrections. You, you weren't being critical of them because you still, you just said it was choices that you still made. But Overall, what I'm yeah. hearing is we're all products of our environment. In your case, you didn't have in your home uh, a, a father figure. Mm -hmm. And Nowadays, people get somewhat offended when we say that with regards to the gender discussion that we have. But when I'm listening to Reverend Jose Hernandez, the Watts gang guy who now has a, a church in Watts, he says the same thing. The, the mm -hmm. number one reason there's such despair and depression and such challenge and violence in Watts is not one of those homes, not one of those homes has a father figure for those kids, not one. Mm -hmm. And I've heard that from other people. They, they didn't have a father figure. I guess maybe to be more appropriate, we should say a positive role model. But generally mm -hmm. speaking, if there's not a father figure, you have struggles. And, and in this case, you didn't have that, and you didn't have a positive role model either. So as you got out, you... Um, <laughs> you did the workouts to be the tough guy to do what you wanted to do when you got out anyway. Eventually, mm -hmm. you meet Crystal, and the, the two of you both have unique backgrounds, but you fall in love. Mm -hmm. How did the discussion of we, we're, going to, we're going to change course, we're going to go this direction, how did that discussion take place, and then where eventually during the timeline of your of your relationship did the idea of bus builders sober living homes come into play so that's that's kind of a like there's a there's a whole bunch of years in that but you know when I, so i i went to teen challenge in 05 and uh when i went there i got out you know i met my wife and i was i've been always in the streets you know giving people food and helping out and telling them, hey, my life changed. And, of course, I'm a Christian person, so I'm telling about Jesus. And, you know, I'm preaching with them too, but I'm, I'm, I was always trying to give back somehow and, and saying there's hope. You can get out of being homeless or you can get out of being broken. We used to, to end up picking up people and bringing them to our trailer we had with our kids and having Thanksgiving with them. You know, there would be people in the shelters or on the streets that just, they have nothing. So we would bring them in and spend time with them and get to know them and do Bible studies or whatever and, uh, and pray with them and just, you know, see how we could help them and get to know people. 
And then we started to have more kids, and I got into working, you know, a million hours a week for some construction companies. So it slowed down for a while. And after that journey went out, um, you know, we went through that journey of the working and figuring out that I'm going to lose my family working all the time. I, I come back to Bismarck working, and then uh, we started, you know, hitting church hard and going to church. And we were at an event one day, and a guy stood up and said something. He didn't even know us, and he's like, you're going to help people in the community, and people are going to say, why would you, are you helping them? And I'm like, we've already been doing that. You know, We did that years ago, and we kind of forgot where our heart was at. You know, That was kind of our mission in life too. But you know, so we had this word kind of thing over us. The next day, you know, we're we're bringing people in, you know, church people, non-church people. We're just trying to build community. Really, is what we're doing, because you never know. Someone on the streets connect could connect to someone who has their life together, and that just takes off. You know, we can't do it all. So we had a you know just a food gathering and something in our house, and a girl came that Crystal knew, and she said, uh. I'm trying to get my life and my daughter back together. I don't know what to do. And Crystal said, remember, we had that word that we need to help people and we're going to help people. And so we have a, a, you know, we have a four level house. It's a split level house. It's like three bedrooms up and then there's like, you know, kitchen area, everything. Then there's another bedroom, then a downstairs where I had another bedroom. And what we ended up doing is um, all my kids moved into one room to let that lady live with us to get her job and everything. Pretty soon there was more people and more people, and then we ended up moving everyone downstairs in our personal house of our of our kids, and then we had the upstairs with the bathroom, the three bedrooms in the bathroom, as uh, different people trying to get their life together. We first initially started as not charging rent and all that because we were, we just want to help. That was very tolling on us. <laughs> I was about $7,000 a month working construction, hoping these guys and people would help me. And it ended up becoming such a, a laborious thing and stress on our family. We ended up helping a couple people get into apartments, and some people went, went on their way. And then I we came across this gentleman, too, and, uh, that said, hey, I, I'd love to help you. I'll buy a house. We can use it for this ministry, this type of stuff. Um, you know, you pay rent on it, but it'd be for, for this purpose. And uh, we're really fortunate. I don't know. There's a gentleman named David Vernoy from Redemption Road in Fargo. Um, I reached out to him. I reached out to a few different places about this sober living. You know, there wasn't a lot of information because I think there was two at the house at houses at the time. And as I reached out to David Vernoy, he said, "You can come up and you can get my whole program. You can come up and you can see my my financials, everything I do. Uh, just love to help you out." And it was a huge asset because we looked at how he was doing it. We looked at some other places of how they're doing it, and we figured how could we be a place that's different, but then yet that would really help people in a different area of need. Because if you know we're the same as every program, then we're just going to be competition. And so we we kind of got our thing set up, and and then another house came and. We just really started seeing as like new guys would come in, you know, you kind of have some guys that ain't sure and there's guys that are doing it and some guys that are getting stable and it's good to get the guys that are routined and stable into a safer place from that place so they, they don't have the drama of a guy using at night or and they have to get to work and that's why we have different phases so that they, they can actually kind of move away from all the drama they've been trying to escape, you know. Yeah. A couple things that, before I forget, 
<laughs> Sorry. No, that's okay. That was great information. Thank you so much, okay. Shane. You said we moved all of our kids into one room. How many kids were in one room in the Bloom House? Well, there, there's two, two rooms. We have a theater room that was downstairs, and all my girls went and lived in the theater room. Actually, yeah, all the girls, four girls in the theater room, and then the boys were just up one level to their bathroom in their bedroom. So there was two in the one and then four in the theater room. So, so your girls were sharing one room? Yes. This was the families all in to help people that need help. Oh, my goodness. My boys, they would, uh, you know, my boys and my girls, we would, you know, a lot of people were kind of blown away by what we're doing. Our neighbors would put, like, stuff in our mailbox and call the cops on us and, you know, report us to the city and all kinds of different things. And, um, you know, we would sometimes go to the homeless shelter and there's families in there. There's people. There's people that aren't drug addicts and criminals in there. Some are, some aren't. But there was some families in there of people that were broken, and we would invite them up on Sundays just to come up and eat with us and watch TV and hang out and be people. And they were so confused by it, but they just liked the break, and they wanted to be treated like people. They loved it. Mm. And our neighbors, you know, I live in a nice area, so my neighbors were very, you know, you, it's okay to help them, but don't do it right here, you know. We don't want that around here. And uh, my kids were so amazing because they got to uh, – See, people are people if they have addictions or life's hitting them real hard. And, uh, and they, they, can, they can pray for them. They can encourage them. And then everybody's still, no matter what they've been through, they need hope, you know. Yeah. I, got, I got to say something because this just drives me nuts when I hear this as a former commissioner and mayor. I've been, plenty of, been in plenty of meetings where some zoning thing was discussed and the neighbors, and I get it. We all love where we live, and we want to be protective of it. But we've got to get real and honest about a couple of things. First of all, we're supposed to help our neighbors. Second mm-hmm. of all, if you think there isn't in your neighborhood already people yeah. that struggle with addiction, people that are probably abusive, uh, people that have some challenges and they're looking for help too. If you don't think mm-hmm. that's already there, you're kidding yourself. I mean, it's, yep. it's part of part of life. Isn't fair. Sometimes life isn't fun. Sometimes it sucks. And you have people in your neighborhood who need help. They're already there. Back to mm. you in teen challenge, 2005. That was 2005. You said, right? Yeah. Around 2005. Yes. We used to have at our church teen challenge would come at least once a year okay and make a presentation i think it back then it might have been former sheriff berg maybe that was yeah yeah he was involved back then yeah and i'll just and i think at that time there might have been the hovens or the kramers involved in terms of now senator they're both senators now right Mm -hmm. and so I, i remember folks from Teen Challenge coming to make these incredible testimonial presentations at our church. Were you one of those guys that this was almost a last straw for you? Sometimes folks are there in front of a judge or whether it's a district or a federal and they have an, they, they have a choice they can make. They can put you back in the pen. They can put you somewhere 
Sometimes they say, I'm going to give you an opportunity and you're going to go into teen challenge or something like that. Was that the case with you? Yeah. So, so for me, it was, uh, I just got done doing a four year sentence. I mean, I was 18 after two months after 18, I was in, I was out two months. I was into Jamestown. I was out two months and it was, uh, then I was in for four years and I was back out and the last charge we were doing, we were stealing trucks from the like Pucklich in different places and we were robbing the gaming facilities around here, getting in high-speed chases. And um, I was probably 7 to 15 years going away. And I, I know if I went away, I was going to be so much worse because I was losing hope. I was – I mean, it, it was it was done. You know, for me, I just didn't see, see anything. So I, I said, I'll take a chance here. At least I can uh, fake it to make it. <laughs> I could fake it to make it and maybe get out of here and then just kind of be normal or whatever. But uh, something something shifted in that place, you know, something really hit me there. So in Teen Challenge. Yeah, I I started really praying like I started seeking God to, to be real. I didn't grow up in church and I, this is where I'd probably be preachy, but I, I started praying and praying and praying and I had so many crazy encounters where I have seen like a real God move. And then like my heart was so angry and I want to fight everybody and I hated everybody. I was racist. I was so many things. And uh, like the, the love of God started changing me where I started caring for people and loving people and loving myself. And I never knew that. I just knew pain, hurt, drama, like all that craziness. And I mean, being suicidal, depressed, everything. And God started to break a lot of that in my life. So I worked there for a year after that, and I, I found out helping guys was something I was good at and, you know, um, just connecting to people and sharing hope. And then I ended up meeting my wife, and then we got to enjoy our journey of discovering what marriage was. So, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I'm thankful for that place. I am, I'm thankful they have places like that where you can, you know, they have Heartview and New Freedom in different places where you – can go through your life and see what's really hurting you inside. People really need to do that. I think even people in church or just in life in general just need to examine themselves, you know, because we can get messy. So, Before I move on, before Teen Challenge, you, you were a bad guy. I mean, you were, you were robbing, stealing. You were breaking laws, probably still using, I don't know. You weren't hanging around ultra boys, that's for sure. So uh, <laughs> your centers of influence were guys just like you. Mm -hmm. That's like a miracle that mm -hmm. a judge looks at you and says you're going to Teen Challenge. Because nowhere, if I'm hearing you correctly, nowhere in your life was there a place that you said, Jesus or God is the person that's going to help me until you got to Teen Challenge. I, is, is that what I heard? Well, so when I was in Dakota Boys Ranch at 14, um, they they have a play called Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. They have it at Evangel. They used to. Basically, it's kind of a biblical thing of the rapture where you go to heaven and I go to hell. You know, it's like you face Jesus and you're going to heaven, going to hell. He's separating people. I never read the Bible. It was like, you know, the right size paper for uh, rolling cigarettes and weed in the jail and stuff, to be honest. 
And uh, so them little Gideon Bibles were, were perfect for that. And other than dipping in some churches to smoke weed and get out of the wind every once in a while. And I mean, it, you know, I felt when we went to church, it was because maybe my mom was feeling guilty or something. And I never, I never was really into it. Um, I used to, I, I was, we were not very good kids. But uh, at 14, I went to that Heaven's Gates, Hell's Flames. I had no idea what it was, but I, they said, if you want to know Jesus and be saved from hell, raise your hand. And I'm like, I, I live in hell right now. I don't want to go to hell. I, I, don't, I don't even understand it. I just don't want to go to hell. And when I was in the streets, um, I was uh, at 23 well, in 2005. You know, my, my buddy and I were robbing places. He tried killing us. Uh, had a knife under the mattress. If the girl, if the cops came, put her throw it or jump off the balcony head first. I was at the end of my. I was at the end of it. I was like totally done. I was gonna get a. I have a, a guy that I used to get drugs from that had a, on serialed guns. Uh, you know, he had a forty-five Desert Eagle and a sawed-off shotgun. I was gonna get one of them for a couple hundred bucks and then shoot me, the girl, and the guy, and just be done. And that's. I was battling my my head so much. Of uh, you know, end it all. You're worthless. Go to prison. You know, there's no hope. I've had the West Central director. You know, I was friends with this kid. Tell me I'm no good. I'm worthless. I'm going to prison the rest of my life. Teachers tell you you're going to you're a prison. You're a troublemaker. You know, you're like a, you're no good and all that stuff. You're always a problem. So I was really beginning to believe that that's it. That's it. And then at 23, one day I was talking to my aunt, and she said, Shane, we love you. You know, we we love you. And we care for you. What are you doing? And my mom's like, carry a card around in your pocket. When they find you dead, they can call me. And uh, then I heard God speak to me. I heard a voice say that, you, this isn't you. You're meant for good. Do you know who you are? <laughs> I never heard, heard a voice of hope. But even in Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, I have plans for you, a hope, a plans for your future, plans for prosper. I never knew any of that stuff. I never felt an inspirational voice or heard an inspirational voice. And then uh, so I... I was like, okay, what is that? And so when I went into jail, we would start praying, and uh, I don't even know how to pray, and I didn't even know how to read the Bible. A, a pastor from the Baptist church came to visit me, uh, Don Burnett, and he would just listen and talk to me. And I said, I have no idea, but I, you know, I feel like something's there trying to change my life. I felt this voice of hope come into my life, and uh, I, I don't know what to do. And he said, just start praying and read this, read John or read the, you know, this Bible, whatever, Gospels. And I would pray and everybody would get out of jail because they'd say, can you pray for me? I have court. And they would all get out of jail. And I'm like, that ain't no fair. And, and we would just start feeling this peace come in the jail cell. And uh, I said, I was like, I need that peace inside of me, not just externally. And that was my journey, just trying to figure out what was that trying to save my life? You know, what was... I didn't even understand the whole Christianity thing, but you know now I now I do more. But I just I realized there was something that I did that day at fourteen where I said I want you come Jesus to come in my life. I want God you to come in my life and change my life. And it took for me to get at the end of myself, kind of a thing, to to really let him in. You know. So it took about another nine years. Really. Yeah, <laughs> I was kind of stubborn. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, like me, maybe I was just a little slow. Slower than some. I was never fast. Shane, help me understand how blessed builders and then 
Sober Living Homes and then Blessed Builders Ministry. Because are there three different organizations that you're really running? Or I, I'm confused. So, so there's Blessed Blessed Builders Construction side. That's what we started out. I was a employee as a pipe fitter for years and stuff like that. A, a foreman for a company doing construction and refineries. Uh, after a while, I got out of that, but I've always done hobby work of building stuff and flooring and construction. And then uh, I was plumbing for a while. My boss laid everybody off, and I ended up uh, to start taking jobs. I, I made something, and a bunch of people are like, hey, can I can I get something built? And it turned into full-time. So I ended up being full-time for I think we've been full-time maybe seven years, eight years now. And I've done remodels, done – we do fences and decks primarily. I mean, I do. It's it's fun to do, be outside, you know, in, in the four four months of summer in Bismarck. <laughs> <laughs> well, this year but, uh, it's going to be a week and a half. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, you know, you get out and you, and you do that. And then, uh, you know, I would have guys that would come in. They would help me sometimes with business to pay rent. So – the sober living houses is a, is men and women houses for recovery. And that's kind of an entity that we started. And then, uh, you know, that's, that's, we're starting a treatment too. And that's going to be partnering with that too. So we can, we can help out. But the whole thing of a lot of this is our ministry, which is we go to the streets. We really go out to the streets and that's i I'm a licensed pastor and the 12th of May, I'll be at evangel getting recognized but uh, I mean, I didn't, I didn't really plan on doing all that stuff. I just kind of uh, started jumping into it more here lately, and uh, so we go to the streets. So we like to go to the park and we out and go minister. We go share hope. You know, your life could change. Of course, we're preaching, but uh, I try to bring people along with me that even if they're not of faith, but they can share something. They can share, hey, you know, I was there. I've been there. You can get out of it too. Because overall, I mean, it's about the city getting hope and getting... Our city is not the same. It is not the same. Um, we have areas where there's shootings. That was never been there. We hear gunshots while we're working. That's never been there. There's dead bodies. That's never been there. So my ministry of Blessed Builders is to go out in the streets and to preach and to work with the community to try to get them out of where they're at. The sober living homes are, if they wanted to come into our treatment or our sober living homes, we'd partner with them all the way through the journey or get them into Heartview, New Freedom, or something that can help them too. That's kind of a whole picture of all three of those. I'm trying to get out of the construction side, but if it's, you know, the houses ain't full, I have to pay the bills. And if they're, they have to be all the way full for us to even maybe get off of working. And, and, uh, that is, that's not happened yet. So we got what? Want the right candidates, you know? So. I'm going to talk about something that might be uncomfortable for some folks to hear. You you mentioned uh, it's not the same city. No. Here's what I know. And there are reasons I know this. And you know it too, because we kind of talked about it. And it isn't exclusive to Bismarck Mandan. It's happening in a lot of Midwestern communities. And I think you even mentioned a little bit of something like this at your gala. Mm-hmm. In the big cities where all the territories are taken, there are folks that are looking to expand 
their footprint or someone wants to start their own when mm -hmm. it comes to dealing. Mm -hmm. And you can buy drugs in the street at street prices in any of those big metropolitan areas and bring them here and sell them and make money. So you can buy them, not wholesale, you can buy them in the street because this is somewhat of a virgin market compared to those. Mm -hmm. And that's starting to have significant impacts on smaller communities because that's what's happening. And we don't talk a lot about it for whatever reason, but to your point, that's one of the things that's having an impact on how our, our community is changing. And, mm -hmm. and you're in the street, so you see that, right? Yeah, it's, yeah, like I kind of was trying to make a point of it. When I was running around 15, 16 years ago, the actual gentleman that kind of ran the, the, state, the, the city was at the gala. A uh, gentleman that was there, he, like, this was his territory. And people would not mess with him, you know. And, I mean, that was the guy I wanted to be. Everybody wanted to be that guy. He was a name, and and everybody knew his name. And now it's kind of a free-for-all. So you see that where there's gangs from California, from Detroit. There's uh, Mexican mafia guys coming up here. And they're they're going to the reses. They're going to places where, you know, Newtown or Cannonball, Fort Yates places – and they're living where the local authorities can't touch them. And if people aren't saying nothing, then they're 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 kind of have a free for all. And if they get one guy caught, they just send another one. And uh, you know, you get a dollar a pill. They have these pills that they they have these M thirty pills. I've never even really heard of them, but they're fentanyl and oxycontin and hydrocodone. They're like a kind of a just a cluster of different ingredients. And they're 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 a lot of them from Mexico. Um, but I've been seeing that. I deal with guys that are federal caseloads that could come into my house. Usually it's a gun, it's M30s, it's fentanyl, it's uh, meth um, and heroin, but a lot more of the fentanyl and the heroin, the stuff that's going to kill you, and the gun too. And these guys are just traveling through the state. They're just traveling through the state, and they're usually Detroit or California. Mm. And that's happening. I mean, you know, there's a place down by the the – Raging Rivers, um, there's that little gas station there where everybody, you know, gets their stuff for the weekend. And right next to them, there's an apartment complex. And uh, I was doing a deck down on McKenzie Drive, right in the waterway, and I heard pop, 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 pop. And I thought there was a, a shooting range maybe by the Kiss Livestock. Then I seen these, you know, these colored guys. I'm not being racist, but I seen these colored gentlemen running around, and I'm like, there was a shooting right there. And as I started talking to some of the people that I run around with and uh, the people that are in and out of the, you know, the, the drugs still, they said, yeah, there's a horseshoe area there and it, and they call it the crack stacks or something. I can't remember what it is, but there's, there's people in there selling and there's bad drug deals go wrong and they're shooting. And I'm like, there is, I think it's South Bay. That's right next to that. There's a, a a community that's higher end right there, and it, it it's not afraid of your economics, your social status, or nothing. These drugs do not care. These dealers, these guys do not care. Um, what time of day it was? It was broad daylight, and they're shooting. They're like living like it's in the ghetto or living like whatever a big city type thing. And I'm not trying to 
stereotype or you know demographic it or nothing like that but whatever they're bringing in they don't care about what we've been living as in a community you weren't being um racist you what you're describing is the activity in the bigger cities that is now here it's new to us and it's 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 a problem and and folks like you and crystal are addressing it by taking people out of the streets giving them hope here's something i'm really curious about what what year was it that you started bringing people into your home how long ago was that the first time or actually like letting them live with us letting them live with you uh, probably about four or four or five years ago okay so and they you've had people living with you most of the time since then not in our personal house because they're now in the sober living home yeah after a year we did it in our personal house and then we realized it was just getting to be a lot for us you know you have to kind of when you're at home and people are living with you you kind of um, you're a different person <laughs> you have guests constantly and so it's kind of nice to be able to breathe you know so. so something I'm really curious about when COVID hit and the you know we were locked down and in North Dakota we weren't locked down as long as other places right mm -hmm. what did that do to the silver living homes that you had at the time and what did it even do for you and your business and you and your family at home. How did how did you handle the pandemic? So I was in the middle of a remodel, a kitchen remodel for my business side. I was in the middle of a kitchen remodel, and the lady's kitchen was all tore apart. And I I told her I said I don't know what they're 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 old farmers, so they you know backbone of the community here. They don't care if they have shingles or what the farming community <laughs> they get to work, you know. And so they were like, we just need our kitchen back and we need our stuff done. And if you need to mask up or we can leave, you just tell us what we need to do. And so I just did my job, you know, and um, go to, you know, Menards has got to always be open, you know, for materials because it's a part of the the um, the National Guard. So it has to be open for medical emergencies still and community emergencies. So, we, you know, I have I had all my supplies. So I just finished that job. On the other hand, I had guys that were working full time and guys that were not doing stuff and and uh, you know kind of working and the guys in construction most people don't care because they have to get the job done you know um, they might have some like um, protocol or something you know you're sick or you get hot or you sneeze and just leave but uh, you know I did have a few people that were just ended up having to stay home for a while because the people didn't know what to do so there was you know people living in the house and they weren't sure you know, what to do, but it was kind of, you know, I think the, the fear and the, the overwhelming sense of uh, anxiety that was brought with it was way harder for a lot of people to, and then especially high, like I, I've been in lockdown, you know, in prison, 23 hour lockdown for about a year total. And that puts you in a way different place. And I've seen that in a lot of people, they just kind of became more overwhelmed in a lot more fear and anxiety of even how to deal with everything. But, you know, I'm thankful they have Zoom meetings. They had a lot of Zoom meetings for AA, NA, and church stuff was online. So a lot of my guys were able to do that. I still would go visit my guys. I don't, I didn't care. I would go visit them and, you know, pray with them or 
um, to see how they're doing. And then some of my guys got sick, so I would go give them vitamins and stuff and go see how they're doing. Um, I I mean, I've, I have believe in that old farm life mentality, you know, just keep working through it kind of thing. So <laughs> that's how North Dakota is, I guess, but too stubborn to get sick, some of them. You know, back to your homes, and you have the rules, and I'm assuming there's not a lot of flexibility. These are the rules you got to follow them. They're pretty and, easy. I, well, I, I saw the I saw the list of them. I mean, they're and they're common sense. Be nice, be courteous, don't use bad language, clean up, contribute. Mm-hmm. You know, all, all of that. In, in the in the house, is there almost like any other fraternal? or communal kind of living situation, is there someone that has the main responsibility for making sure the system's working well, or is that you? Um. Okay, so I'm there, like, you know, at least three times a week. I have cameras in the house, common areas. I can see what they're doing if something goes goofy. Um, but there is sometimes house, like, leaders, you know, and I don't like putting all that responsibility on guys that are getting their life together. Sure. It's a lot for them just as themselves, no matter if they're two years or whatever clean. I mean, some you know, and that's a big thing is sometimes people get into it and it ain't their vision, so they feel forced out and they have to get out of there. So I don't like putting that weight on them. Trial and error, I've learned that. Maybe just let them, you know, help me to know what's going on. If a guy's, you know, being goofy, I need to come down and UA him. Or if uh, there's tension in the house or we just need to address issues. And most of the time, a lot of the, the guys I have will actually just, you know, you build those relationships where they're talking to me. But in the one house I have, you know, it's got a level one upstairs. And then downstairs, there's two apartments in it. And then in them apartments, there's actually like my level three guys who've been clean a year. So they'll go up sometimes and check on those guys. There's a few guys that are very big in sponsoring and, you know, an AA and I ask that they go upstairs and just check on the guys. They can UA the guys if they need to, if something's there. If I go out of town, they can UA them. But I usually have a guy that's downstairs that can come up and be be my hands and feet if I need it. But I, you know, I don't want him to feel like that's his ministry or like that's his problem, you know. So most of it is, uh, you know, the guys checking in. There's curfews. There's all that, all kinds of stuff. Maintaining employment. So many meetings. You know, there's like criteria for maintaining a job. You know stuff like that, but um, we. I my whole thing is is I you know I'm I'm good at doing prison time, I'm good at doing treatment, I'm good at you know halfway houses because I have a structure. I, I I when I got out of it, I never had that. So what I'm trying to get the guys to do is learn how to be accountable to themselves. You know, in a sense where we have a, a mandated program, this is the thing to follow and. If you're church or NA or AA or whatever you're doing, we have so many meetings a week. Um, get get your list signed, stuff like that. But uh, we want them to progress to where they get to a place where they trust themselves. Because a lot of the guys have, you know, dealing with mental and dealing with growing up, bad decisions. A lot of them could be making the right, most, like the right decisions and just feel like they're doing the wrong thing. But you know, through time they could start seeing that, you know, Hey, I can trust myself and I can say no too. I can, you know, it's, it's kind of more on them. It's not their sponsor doing it. It's not my program. It, you know, it's not me. It's 80% you, man. 
You know, you did it. You fought for it. You got your life back. So, I'm going to ask you a question, maybe kind of hard to uh, answer, but I never plan the questions beforehand, so I can't give you questions I'm going to ask anyway. But since you started Blessed Builders, started Sober Living Homes, how many people have gone through your system, for lack of a better term, and how many can stay in the three homes you have now? And then what's the makeup? How many men? How many women? So how many have gone through total? Yeah. I am not sure. I'm not sure because there's some guys that it's and it's hard to track because my wife's got women now. So I don't I try not to pay attention to them too much. <laughs> but uh, and she's fairly new. I think she's about a, a year into it. And there's a couple women that been with her the whole time. You know, I think she's actually about a year and a half into it. But there's been a, a few women that been with her the whole time, you know. And, uh, you know, some of them were rushing to get in and get out in three months, but they found out that they, they like the environment, they like how we progressed them, and they're, you know, they're seeing things they need to work on too. You know, like, I can't be alone, I'm having a hard time with that. So, like... um. Gosh, I went. We can right now. She can hold sixteen women, and I can hold nineteen men. You know, and that's with our our three places. It for for a long time it was just a, like a five bedroom house. You know, and we were we were we were. It, that's why it's hard to track it because for a while we had the one house and I had men in it, and then I had like some bunks and then I had you know like single beds, and then you would see guys and then I would just have all single beds and then you know we we're kind of kind of gauging how this would work you know and so since i think we got it figured out i mean you know there's been times where i've had three guys in there you know in my my one house in in where i can hold 12 guys so it's really hard to gauge out how it is and the guys who stick with it like if a guy sticks with the whole program they're doing good you know like honestly they do good i mean i've had a few guys come in and they hit hit a wall and I have them go back to treatment or they don't go back to treatment. They go do whatever. And, but usually I get guys that'll come in and I'll say, Hey, get back into treatment quick. And then they'll come back and then they'll do good and, uh, and just keep working with them. Or they end up getting, I help them get into another place that they end up doing good too. Cause, uh, it's really hard to gauge that, you know, but if a guy stays with it the whole time, I've, I've got guys that have been with me two years. I got guys right now. I have two guys moving out this next month. They've been with me a year. One guy was looking at like seven, seven years, three to seven years federal time. Judge sentenced him to a year in my place. Uh, he's just trying to get his kids back. Everything. So he's uh, in March. He was done. He's going to get a place here and go on and live with his kid and work his job. So at the gala, you had residents of the homes share their stories. Those yeah, were yeah. powerful. I, I try not to cry in public, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> and there there were some there were some powerful and real emotional stories that folks were sharing, especially the young women mm -hmm. who addressed without going into detail the abuse that they experienced. Yeah. Um, you know the other thing I got to make clear before we go much further, this doesn't impact just people 
that um, are in a bad socioeconomic situation. This impacts everybody. It doesn't matter if mm-hmm. you, where, where you come from. You will see people that have incredibly successful families. Yes. Um, that they are the pillars of community. Yes. And something goes on, and that's what happens. That's what happens yes. with addiction, the disease of addiction. That's what happens when something goes upside down in someone's life and they make a decision out of desperation, it can happen to anybody from any walk of life, period. Mm-hmm. Yes. And, and I I think it's going to be with us for a while, Shane. I think that this is um, a, a problem that's being addressed wonderfully by you and Crystal in a, in a beautiful, wonderful way. What... What's the one thing, what's the one thing people should know about um, Blessed Builder and Sober Living's Home? What's the one thing they should really know, Shane? Hmm. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, the, the one, the thing I was pushing on the, at the gala was second chances. Hmm. Really second chances. Um, and, and that's what I've seen in a lot of it, a lot of what I've been doing, uh, I've had a guy that I worked with, he was eight years, minimum mandatory, drug sentence, life changed, heart changed, but he was looking at going to court, and he, there, he had an eight-year minimum mandatory, that's a, that's a law that you get the, you get the time, you know, and the judge said, uh, you know, I, I stood in the courtroom for him, and another gentleman stood in the courtroom for him, and then we told him about our lives, and how we see him, what he's doing, and and uh, the the judge is like, I'm going to give you a second chance. You know, if you continue to do well, I'll let you move on with your life, and we'll just act like nothing happened. And and he he went kayaking that day, and he had his apartment packed up. You know, and then uh, there was another gentleman I had in my house. He, um, you know, he was looking at 25 years federal time from his point system and all that, and. Um, we went to court and, and he, he was with me. He was absolutely like he was done with it. So he did a lot of it himself, his meetings and all that stuff, his job. And I'm just cheerleading him basically there for him and, um, you know, stand in the courtroom for him and go up and speak. Hey, this guy's been uh, doing this. He helps out. He's, you know, helped, you know, UA's guys for me if I need it. And then to see the parents get their kid back, you know. I mean, we have stories of their of kids overdosing. Because I mean, it's it's that's going to happen sometimes. But uh, I've got a lot of guys that they probably don't deserve a second chance. You know, the things they did, the lifestyle they lived. I mean, there's some pretty rowdy guys that they, if you give them the points and the crime and the the judge, they should be put them away for a while. But that destroys the the if they got kids. That destroys if they are actually trying. That destroys if they have family around them, you know, and and if they're married or any of that stuff. It really affects the community if they're actually just a person in addiction that's been stuck in the trap. Because most people ain't trying to be a drug dealer and all that. Most drug dealers end up doing it to support themselves, you know, or they end up doing it for some do it for the money, but most are doing it because they're just trying to get high. And then they get deeper into it, deeper into it pretty soon. It's like, what happened? 
You know, it doesn't just happen overnight. So some of these guys, when they, they're totally done with that life and then they get it going, it's like you get the family back, they get the son back, they get, you know, if there's kids involved in marriage. You, I got another guy that multiple charges, came in for a while, is going to be a social social worker. So a lot of these guys, too, that you're getting back, they're going to actually help against the, the fight because they got a story of success Yeah. and leaders, you know. Shane, thanks for, thanks for going there. I, I have friends that are district judges, and some of them have shared with me exactly what you just went through. So... Here's the, here's the minimum mandatory I have to give this person. But if I it's do that, if I do that, here, here are the, the, the potential unintended consequences mm -hmm. of putting that person away. The kids don't have a father. The, the wife doesn't have the, the, It goes on and on and on. And they say to themselves, I've got to give them a second chance because this is likely what gets destroyed if I make that decision for them. So thanks for addressing mm -hmm. that. By the way, folks, this will all be on MikeSeminary.com, but Shane and Crystal's website is Blessed Builders Sober Living. That's all one word, BlessedBuildersSoberLiving.org. You can learn a lot more by going to that site and see the incredible things that they're, they're doing. I'm going to ask you this question. And you can you, fill out applications there too. I'm sorry. There, no, go, no, go for it. You can you can fill out an application online there too for somebody if they want to get in. That's that site has applications online. So, and you can donate. And if Shane yeah. won't say that, I will. And I'm telling you, these are the exact types of organizations in our communities that you sh we should be giving to because they're making a huge difference in a way that if somebody isn't doing it you got a bigger problem. These are the kind of organizations we have to support financially and otherwise. If you had a magic wand, you could wave over the heads of folks listening to this right now that are addicts and they're desperate or they have a loved one that's an addict or, or they're desperate. Mm -hmm. What's the one thing you want them to know, Shane? Hmm. choices man i just i keep thinking about you know we were we were talking about being a product of your environment but then yet i've been really looking at it and you can be a product of your choice because the more we've been doing this um we've got people that are living in trap houses that's drug houses or on the streets homeless or in a place where alcohol is being used and they're staying sober. Don't just think, you know, because I'm in the environment, I have to become it. You know, and even even for parents, the biggest the biggest thing I see with parents is they feel like they're part of where their kids are at. And so they are fighting tooth and nail to keep them out of it. And I think sometimes you you gotta let them learn. My mom you know, and this is a hard one for parents. I deal with parents, and that's the thing that breaks my heart most with parents is uh, 
you know, the battle they go through with their kids, you know, the ups and downs, the hope, the brokenness, the, oh my God, I'm going to lose them again. I mean, they're just tore apart. My mom basically said, uh, I have to let you go, Shane. It's been tearing me apart too much. And so she said, if they find you dead, then like have something on you they can tell me. I can't do this no more. And I think when I had, you know, finally burned my bridge with my mom, I always found a way to sneak back in or to, you know, just sleep in the garage or something, you know. I need I needed to I need to absolutely be done. And I mean I've been homeless a few different times, seventeen, all that stuff. But I needed to like have no way out. I needed to be like, what am I gonna do next? So that was where I became a product of my choices. I started choosing to do the right thing and, and I mean, listening to so many people, so I'm, you know, you hear it all the time in dumb videos, <laughs> the power of choice. But that is the truth. It really is. Uh, there's a guy I work with. His dad is a career addict, criminal. That guy's never done it. He's never been involved. And he and he's like, I, I, I never want to be what my dad was. And it, it, sometimes it can be an excuse in a way to be the thing you hate <laughs> and don't let that stuff kill you. Don't let it ruin your family because you see it happening in front of you. So like figure out how to make a choice, change the environment. And, uh, we got to end it somehow, you know, we really do. And, and it's a, it's a tough road. It really is. It's a very tough road. I see it both sides with parents, kids. I mean, I, I, we do it because of one guy. He was one of my best friends, and he overdosed. I got a call one night that he overdosed, and I didn't see it coming. I didn't, I didn't see it coming. He was doing so good. Uh, he was in our house. He was doing really good. I loved his family. I like you know, and uh, they're like, "Hey, he died. He overdosed." And I, we got down there, and he was, and we're like, he's just using methamphetamines. You know, you can't overdose. Usually you fall asleep or you pass out. And he left a kid behind and his family behind. And, um, you know, we, it, it hit us. It hit us, you know. What kind of drugs are out there? <laughs> that there's, there's, the meth is so different. Everything is so different nowadays. I mean, marijuana's got fentanyl in it. Percocet's got fentanyl in it. Who knows what's in what's in drugs these days? People don't. Your dealer don't care about you. <laughs> you know, when I was when I was doing meth, I would get it from my dealers or my cooks. You know, everybody was cooking dope, so you knew what it was. Nowadays, it's coming from some place where they don't care what's in it. I mean, the methamphetamine is like so, like psych psych and induced i mean people are ripping sheetrock off the wall and looking for cameras within a few days i i don't know what's in it mm. and it's uh it's very scary what it what's going on in the community in the real world you know sorry that was a whole lot <laughs> no that's just that's perfect and normally i'd tell you we're done but i'm going to ask you another question because i think oh, this, no. is, this is another one we got it we got to talk about you, you still have the same magic wand. Oh, no. And, and, and now that you everybody just heard what you said, and we've been talking about community, how it's different. Now you wave that magic wand over the heads of community leaders 
people that get out there, they're out front, they're always talking about what a great Make place up. this is. You know, <laughs> what is it what is it you want them to know about what you just said, but more importantly, what they should know about blessbuildersoberliving.org. What do you want them to know about that? That we're here to help. That we really are here to help. But like the magic wand thing would be for them to wake up. Like to really, if the jails are full, the prisons are full, you can't keep people in them. We have a real problem here. We have a real problem. I mean, there's a couple places in the community where people don't want to go. We need to go into those community places and see what's going on there and how can we change it. Is there vocational rehab things or their votech things or like scholarships or even coming in helping people fill out medicaid things or i mean the it's it's wild we've we've reached out to some leaders before and trying to get help and they refer us to other organizations that are doing it but it's like it can't be all the organizations the government has to step in somewhere and and help it really does it you know it's not just it's not just correction it's rehabilitation and I look at Sweden. I'm sorry, I'm getting a little long again. I don't know if you've ever looked at Sweden, but their re rehabilitation is they when people are in trouble, they'll put you into a place, and it's like a cell, but there's a you know there's a kitchen there, and it's like an apartment within a cell type thing. And they realize that they are failing you somewhere. You missed the resources of either budgeting or life skills or votech or you know something. And you need to get trained and empowered so you can be a successful citizen instead of a, a number. Mm -hmm. And that's what I really look at is if we want a community to make it, we need to help where people are failing and where people are broken or where lives are being torn apart instead of just kind of we'll put them to this side of town or that side of town. And I almost sound like I'm getting political in a sense, but, you know, it's a place of being the solution instead of just, categorizing it and statisticing it you know so that's what our kind of our vision is to just see where the need's at that's what we do with blessed builders we try to see where the need at is at and and go into the places before it gets even worse because it won't stop yeah hey shane thanks so much for joining me today thank you for what you and crystal and really your whole family are doing with blessed builders you, yes. sober living and it's blessedbuildersoberliving.org yeah, we we have a we have a problem in communities like Bismarck, and it's it's going to get worse before it gets better. And if if it's not for people like Shane and Crystal, and we, a lot of us should be joining up, who's going to do it? Right. Appreciate you so much. God bless you. What you're doing, you're an amazing guy. Your wife's an amazing person. God bless you. Love you for what you're doing, Shane. Thanks so much. Yes, thanks for your time, Mike. I really appreciate you having me on here.